evening's event, Adaptation Strategies for Artist-Led Spaces. Um, just before we kick off um, with introductions to our panel, I wanted to go through a couple of housekeeping things. Um, so the toilets, if you need them, uh, straight through the shutters at the back on the other side of that wall. Um, there's no fire test due, so if an alarm goes off, everybody panic and leave via the fire exits that way. So follow the signs that way and come out the way that you came in. Um, the event tonight is being audio recorded and will be available online on the ArtQuest and Shipment website. Um, my colleague Tom will be um, snapping some photographs on social media. Tom's the one in the cool hat. Um, so if you'd rather not appear in photos, please let Tom know. Um, if you're tweeting, Instagramming or similar and you'd like to tag um, ArtQuest, Shipment or any of our panelists on uh, social media, our Instagram handles are up there and around, uh, you might have seen them by the bar and stuff. Um, in terms of timing for the, timings for this evening, we'll be uh, chatting with the panel for around 45 minutes or so. After that, we'll open up to, to you all for questions and comments for another 30 or 40 minutes. As I say, the event is being um, recorded, so if you could wait until I pass you a mic before you, um, before you ask your question or, or make your comment, that would be really great. Um, and um, after this, you're all very welcome to stay for a uh, glass of wine, and we kind of call it a night at around 9pm. Um, so I'm delighted to be chairing tonight's session, which is a partnership between ArtQuest and Shipment, who are our hosts this evening. Um, Shipment it was established in 2019. It's a, a moving artist-led gallery that occupies a range of locations to present site-specific creative projects. Um, Shipment produces contemporary art, performance, writing, design, and technology projects, and is directed by artist and producer Oliver Durkin, who graduated from Chisholm Hill Arts Place into the Wild Artist Development Program in 2017, and previously ran and uh, co sorry previously co-ran curatorial collective. It's kind of hard to explain which you might otherwise know as IKO. Shipment's next project was announced this week and it will be a solo exhibition by Diane Edwards opening on the 26th of April, running from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, in terms of ArtQuest, to give you a little bit more information about us, um, we use research about artists' um, working conditions and career barriers and motivations to develop the professional information and advice and projects that we provide. We aim to increase understanding amongst artists about the art world in which they operate, helping them find work, make work, sell work, and network. Um, all of our activity learns from the art world in the context of the rest of the world to understand the wider issues, policies, and politics that impact on the opportunities and threats facing arts practice in the UK. And we use all of this to build new projects with our partners and help artists meet their ambitions. Every year, we focus our activities and our programs through a particular filter, and in 2019, we take the theme of work as the impetus for what we do. In particular, the motivations, barriers, and similar that artists face in their working lives, what their attitudes are to money, and their measures of success. So, from our research and that of partner organizations, we know that artists' attitudes to work is generally atypical. Research suggests that they're not motivated by profit or even particularly by pay and will subsidize their artistic practice through multiple other jobs, including jobs that may not have anything to do with the arts. Few report having a pension and a majority don't see themselves as retiring as other workers do. 
Despite these negative economic factors, they overwhelmingly report high levels of well-being and agency and think of themselves as serious professionals, even when they don't earn money from their practice necessarily. So only 7% earn more than 20,000 a year in 2015, for example. And for comparison, the 2018 national minimum wage would be 15,269 per year. And there are 36% earning under 100,000 pounds from their practice annually. Um, many artists are from higher socioeconomic backgrounds and are more highly educated than the general population, even though you don't need qualifications to be an artist. So we believe that how artists thrive in these challenging work environments now could hold cues for future working practices for all. And in the context of all of this, we're looking at artist-led spaces in London and the artists that work there. So we're going to hear from a range of spaces and consider what new challenges current conditions present, how much this has changed over recent years, and whether there are new opportunities that exist today for artist-led galleries that they can capitalize on, and what the pitfalls are might be that are around today to avoid. And we'll also be asking what separation, if any, exists between the work of artist-led spaces and the individual practices that are involved in running them. So finally, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce the panel this evening. Um, starting from uh, close to me to the end there, uh, we're joined by Daniel Kelly from DKUK. Um, Daniel has exhibited in a range of spaces, including the Saatchi Gallery, Whitechapel Gallery, Ancient and Modern French Riviera and Matt's Gallery. His works, The Pirates of Carthage, was performed on Resonance FM. He has work in the Saatchi Collection and was formerly an associate of Open School East. Um, then we have Jennifer Lewandowski of French Riviera, who collaborates with artist Samuel Levac um, and have opened French Riviera and Bethnal Green as an extension of their long-standing collaboration in 2011. Um, they work in a range of different mediums, including film, installation, music and performance. And since, since 2010, they have made music and uh, performed with their band Das Hund. Um, their work has been shown in UK, Europe and the USA in spaces such as David Dale Gallery, Garage Rotterdam, uh, Plymouth Contemporary Open. And they've also performed at Serpentine Galleries and the Whitstable Biennale. And actually, I have a prop. So... <laughs> Their, their new record is available tonight. Uh, you can uh, chat to Samuel here in the front row and uh, they're available for 20 quid. So please do, do check them out. Um, and then... T-shirts. <laughs> next, that's next, T-shirts next. Oh, we've got t-shirts. Uh, you have got T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're also joined by um, Roland Fisher of SET. Um, SET is a charitable incorporated organization founded in 2016 by Roland Fisher, Joshua Field and Ollie Tobin and is a multifaceted arts and community initiative based in numerous centers across London. SET curates an eclectic and experimental arts program alongside um, artist workspace. SET projects includes performances, live music, exhibitions, talks, workshops and screenings which seek to provide a platform for new and collaborative projects. Um, with an inclusive ethos always, SET is a community that aims to bridge gaps between disciplines, creating a platform for collaboration and multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary experimentation. So we've got a really great range of uh, different perspectives and different speakers tonight. So um, I just wanted to kick off by, uh, maybe if we start with you, Daniel, and we work down, if I could just ask each of you to talk a little bit about the, um, the model of your gallery space. So talk a little bit about how it runs, where the money comes from, and whether the, uh, whether the money is sort of divvied out in a particular way. So if particular streams of funding are used to 
fund particular activities or not, and how that would work. So we um, have been open, this is our fifth year, we've been in Peckham and we function as a hairdressing salon and an art gallery. So the clients look at an exhibition while they get their hair cut instead of a mirror. Um, so that's where the, it's about 80% of the income comes from. That pays for all the um, overheads and staff running costs. And we've also been working with Arts Council England for... Well, since 2015, uh, through Grants for the Arts and the, and the new programme. Um, so that pays for the exhibition programme. There's been a few gaps. They haven't paid for everything. So the business has stepped in and covered the exhibition mm. costs um, in between applications. Um, yeah, and that's the sort of model. We also train artists to be hairdressers as well. So we're sort of giving artists a skill to right. be employed. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Hi there. Um, so, yes, Sam and I set up French Riviera in 2011 in a former shop on Bethnal Green Road, and it was our studio space. Um, and we really wanted to do it as like an extension of our collaboration so we could invite other artists to show with us and we could really kind of looking at like building a network and a community of artists mm. uh, in this space that we just thought was really fantastic and available for use. And um, when we started, it was very much self-funded. We have a cheap pay bar on the opening that would just go back into the program. Uh, we both had other little bits of part-time work that would go back into the program too. Um, and then I think a couple years into running, we started getting Arts Council funding. So we get grants for the arts as well. Um, and it's project by project, so it's not continuous. Uh, we also look to, we sell our own artwork as artists and that will also fund, you know, the, the project overall. So that goes back into the so space. So that would go back into yeah. it to pay ourselves. Uh -huh. um, and now we're in our eighth year of running. We're really looking at ways to kind of sustain that and to sustain our own practice. Uh -huh. And we've definitely become much better at paying ourselves. Yeah. There was a long time when that, you know, it, that wasn't quite so clear. Yeah, that's important to be able to, to yeah. be able to sort of do that. <laughs> and uh, Roland? Um, so we set up SET in 2016. Um, the first building we got was essentially we wanted to do something where we'd be able to have our own studios. Um, after we'd run um, somewhere called Dig beforehand with about 10 of us, there were, Josh and I then continued and wanted to set up set so we got a building and our main kind of income until now has been associate membership fees which is essentially studio rent but um it just comes under so people pay different fees compared to how much space they have um and our program is co-curated with the membership so a lot of it is self-funded we also took out loans to set this up so we had like you know we have horrible loans that we have to repay mm. um and then we expanded a bit from there in order to try to pay ourselves essentially um and now we run a bar too um in dalston and that brings in some money and there are kind of three set buildings um they're all in temporary buildings and one of the ways in which we keep costs down is through taking on temporary space but obviously that has risks and problems with it as in you know at some point you get kicked out um but yeah so that's what we do and that's 
Yeah. Well, the, I mean, that's that the thing that you describe in terms of like temporary spaces and having like short-term arrangements and stuff with landlords. I think that's something that a lot of artist-led spaces and studios and projects experience. I was wondering if you could say a little bit something about how how you manage that, like how you mitigate the kind of risk of the short term. Um, we're, yeah, we're, we're very open with our membership. So when we take on a site, we say exactly how long we think we might have it for to the, to the membership. And I mean, basically, um, it's a community of people working together. So we all go in with the same um, expectations for what might happen. Um, we try and have a have an honest relationship with our own landlords and tell them what we're intending to do and, and find out how long they're likely to give us the space for. Um, one, obviously the upside of it is because you don't expend lots of money on rent, um, you can then offer much more affordable studios than, like, than other kind of arts organisations who take on buildings, which may be longer term, but then the, the costs are all higher. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's cheap and, and that's good. Um, other risks, I mean, there, there's, you never know exactly, I guess, when you're gonna leave a building, but you have a good idea. So if there's planning being put on the building, you can research that, you uh -huh. can speak to the council, they can give you an idea of how long you might have and whether or not it will go to committee. So, um, so yeah, can you say a little bit more about how you research and sort of kind of get a sense of, of how long you've got in a, in a location? So you could basically go on to the planning portal for any, any borough that you have a building in, uh -huh. then just type in the location, then it will come up with the planning application if there is one on the building, at which point you can research who the um, officer is, who's in charge of that, contact them, find out their email and just say, you know, are you likely to pass this? How long is it going to be before you put it into planning? Um, so usually planning will be either, they'll say, okay, we, this should go to committee now because it's a decent planning application, or they'll reject it outright. And so there's usually a stage before it goes into the committee at which they're like deliberating, and they're often very honest. Uh -huh. They'll say, um, okay, we're, we can't put this up for committee yet because the developer hasn't said whether or not they're gonna have affordable housing in the thing. So at the moment it's in limbo. And, and yeah, they'll, they'll be honest about what's gonna happen. And in that way you can judge and you can say, do you have a time when you think we might be out? And you also can speak to the owners of the building and usually they're, they're relatively open about it. That's great. And like, I mean, your circumstances are slightly different with your, your spaces. If, could you say a little bit about what the situation is? Yeah, yeah sure. We, we have support in kind uh -huh. to run the space. There's okay. no way we would be able to do it otherwise. Yeah. So like, that's, um, that's been a unique um, part of our project. Uh -huh. And it's, it's stable. You've been there since 2000 and... It, it, we have it, been there since 2011, 2011 yeah, but, yeah. Um, but no, I think it's probably coming to an end. Right. And how, so, how do you feel about that? Uh, potentially fine, yeah. because, you know, we have done this for a long time now, uh -huh. and I'm sure we'll continue doing something other with yeah. that. But, uh, yeah, it's like maybe even excited, yeah. weirdly. It will, like, it will be sad to not have that space because it's been incredible. Uh -huh. but, um, but then you can bring on something new. So uh, Yeah, I mean, sustainability is this thing that's often held up as... Uh, signify for success but actually it's perfectly fine at some point to go this isn't 
this isn't working or this has reached a natural end and it's a it's a good time to stop yeah well it can push you into taking on a new challenge yeah. and adapting rather than just kind of trudging through uh-huh. something yeah not that you know i don't know i think part of the fact that we have our own practice and we always kind of juggle these two things has kept it quite fresh yeah. until now anyway uh-huh. but but yeah then you know it will make you kind of adapt to new a new situation yeah yeah and and daniel you've recently moved into bigger space haven't you can you say yes, a little bit about we, that we expanded um we started in a tiny arcade mm. as part of art Licks weekend and that was with a space that was sort of i think you wanted 50 pounds to hire it for the weekend uh-huh. or um like a no it was 100 pounds to hire it for the weekend or 50 pounds a week if i signed a three-month lease. that's pretty amazing but it was like three meters by two yeah so it was just about big enough to do a haircut um, and yeah, I've just, I've been, I was in, then I sort of took the unit next door and I was in this sort of double cupboard for four and a half years. Um, and that was really cheap. Uh-huh. That's on, uh, it was just off Rye Lane and, um, in an arcade subsidized by, or a sort of a, a reasonable rate from the Wilson family who run the Bussy building. Right. So yeah, that was, um, helped launch the business really i mean it it turned from an art project into a business in that space and um yeah i tried to move out two years ago onto a unit on rye lane but it wasn't the right time and we've just recently reopened on queen's road Mm -hmm. um to a space which is 10 times the size of the the previous space and has daylight and it's (laughs) lovely um so that's you know we're all really happy and yeah delirious on vitamin d (laughs) now (laughs) and i wanted to ask you all in terms of uh we talked a little bit about um sources of funding and like where the money comes from i just wondered if if you could say a little bit about how that impacts on the 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 program that you run and maybe actually also a little bit about whether and how that impacts on your audiences as well the people who come to the space or who you who you kind of target the program towards i mean maybe if we start with you yeah yeah um, so the, can you say the question again? Yeah, please? so whether, whether the, the, the way that you um, generate income for the space, how that impacts on your programming and the, the people who you attract to the space? Or... Yeah, I mean, for us, it's very specific because yeah. we've got a whole... We've done about 48 exhibitions and showed it to a... We've had a, like a one and a half thousand clients. Wow. So that's one and a half thousand people come in for haircuts and sit with the exhibition for over an hour or three sometimes if they're getting their hair coloured. Yeah. And about 70% of the visitors aren't art people. And that's, so that's way more time than I've spent in front of any kind of artwork. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got a collection show on at the moment, so it's a painting. There's a few paintings in there, but it, there's one painting in there that I own and lives with me at home. Uh-huh. And I had my hair cut in front of it oh, last so that's week. A nice... And it was still a completely different way to look at it. Yeah. You know, even the art, I do interviews with the artists and they all... S- so it's a different way. Even if you've made the thing, you look at it in a completely different way if you just sit statically for an yeah. hour. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the functionality of our space uh, sets the tone for it. Uh-huh. And um, the Arts Council really liked that from the beginning because the match funding comes from the business. Uh-huh. Um, but artists respond really well to that. I just did a studio visit this morning and... Um, the artist was like, yeah, it's brilliant to have this such a strong 
brand identity and a, this real context. Yeah. Because when I'm working with a white cube, I've got nothing to sort of get my teeth into. So, um, yeah, it completely influences the program. And often I'm the one sort of telling the artist to sort of get in the way a bit more. Right. You know, they're, they're very respectful of the sort of so environment they're like, that we they're coming into. We want to allow it to keep working as a space and you're like, no, no, come on. Yeah, you can get in the way yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's nice. Um, and as I said, when we've... Arts Council, all that money has gone into paying artists for commissioning new work um, and some time for me to do the admin for that. Um, but then when the Arts Council hasn't run out, we found cheaper ways to do exhibitions, so mm -hmm. perhaps showing sort of pre-existing paintings or occasionally artists have then given me a proposal that I've just thought, oh, that's too good, I've got to do that. Uh -huh. and I've just found the money. You've funded it from the business? Or from the business, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. cool. Um, so yeah, our, our program is curated by Sam and I, and it's very much an invited program based on meeting or knowing artists that we'd like to work with. Um, and quite early on, we kind of, we decided we want to do a lot of solo shows with artists who were unrepresented by a commercial gallery, or now we actually quite like using the term underrepresented. So they might be working with a gallery in South Africa, but they're underrepresented in London. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to open up a global conversation with artists who are international, but maybe living here. Um, we try not to let budgets rule it. It's more that we will go for funding and if we have the money to put on a show, we'll be as clear as we can with the artists, like you have X amount of money to do this. Yeah. And therefore you, they can make whatever they can make within that. And we kind of work backwards from that space now. Yeah. Because it seems to be the clearest way you can do it. Um, and likewise with ourselves. So if we're doing something, we would sort of now expect that sort of same thing yeah um yeah. yeah no that's great and, and what about what about you roland in terms of the program so we have um the program's kind of split between we have the bar in in dalston and we have a live music program which mm. is almost every night well it's performance and music and then it kind of moves to more electronic stuff on the weekend um and josh basically organizer who's in the audience at the back <laughs> um, he, he basically organises that and does the programming for for the bar so that's our kind of everyday thing um, we also curate our own events there because you know we, we so we both curate our own events and then create events with our membership and then in All Scott Road just down the road just the first building we got we have our um, I guess more like arts programme which focuses more on exhibitions um, we do some talks in at both um, and I guess at the moment I'm organizing the we're doing a residency program at the moment with Oxford Brooks um, University and that's got some funding from the Arts Council um, which is called Cahoon Projects and I'm co-curating that with Alex Trott who's mm. the head of their art um, the fine art course at um, Oxford Brooks and that's to do with basically the idea of social class in the 21st century. Her research topic is um, the working class avant-garde. And we have, we'll have four residents over four months mm. who will be making two exhibitions from working class backgrounds. Because um, obviously that underrepresentation in the arts at the moment has been pretty well highlighted. Um, 
the funding for it comes the bar obviously funds itself yeah. so so all of the music and the performance that's put on there is funded by the bar and we then either from membership fees fund our own program but now we have had funding over the last couple of years from for the program at Allscott Road from the National Lottery and then the Arts Council um, but just for individual projects. Great. And we also do our own ones like Josh and I did a play that we just funded ourselves. Oh well, <laughs> well actually that's quite nice because it leads, leads me on to my next question about your own practices um, and so I just wondered how um, having an, have it, running your own artist-led space um, impacts on your practice. Uh, you might not even, or whether you see it as a separate thing or whether you see it as part of your practice as well, it'd be nice to, nice to hear more about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was on Open School East when I started yeah. uh, DK UK. And yeah, it was very, I've, I trained as a hairdresser when I was 17 before going to art college. And so it had always been something that had been on the side. Um, and I still sort of felt like that when I started at Open School Easter residency program. I'm sure everyone knows what that is. And um, I started there and I was sort of doing these sort of uh, theatrical performance things. And I was very much talking about the salon as a side uh -huh. project. Um, but having a sort of concentrated time in the studio um, really made me think about what I wanted to do. And the DK UK was going very well and building a lot of momentum quite quickly. Um, but I still sort of had this pull towards wanting to finish off this production that I was working on. Um, but it just very quickly became apparent that the, the salon had a lot of momentum and I was really in, enjoying that. And so there was this turning point where I um, stopped writing the play and um, made a font, which we've now got. We've got our own font. And that was like one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> that's what I used to do as a 10-year-old kid was like draw out fonts on my rec uh, record and tapes and VHS things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I've, I've never really looked back since then. Um, I'm still, I sort of, I think it depends who you're talking to. If is my the business is running my art practice mm. or not and i know this touches on one of your later questions but i all just see it as work now yeah i i, I really don't spend much time deliberating on it um i it satisfies everything i was interested in well that's as the an artist that's the big question really is is that because that some aspects like with any job um like there are aspects of a job that you um that you like sometimes and aspects of a job that you don't and quite frequent frequently we talk to artists and they're like i just want to be in my studio making work um and it's like yes but that's just like one part of arguably one part of what what, what you sort of need to do so it's really interesting to hear what bits satisfy you and, and and yeah what bits don't and it sounds like it's quite a you know pleasing contained package for you and that most of it is is working for you yeah, yeah. i mean i kind of even enjoy the bookkeeping yeah to be fair we were talking about it earlier <laughs> yeah. it's just and it all it's all just work you know uh, like a lot of it i kind of don't look forward to but when i'm doing it and seeing the whole thing yeah there's people there's new people coming in now and it's all rolling i'm uh, like well, this is pretty it's brilliant that this is all working and <laughs> i'm asking other people to do a job so uh, that bookkeeping is my you know my job yeah not, yeah yeah so um yeah I, I, 
I'm employed by UAL as a lecturer. I only did three days, but you have to be employed to do that. So I still do things as a as an artist uh-huh. and things like this, which is very uh, rewarding. Um, but yeah, day in day out, I'm running a hairdressing business and an art gallery. Yeah, so I don't want the. It's a bit more nuanced, I suppose, because I don't want the people who are coming to get their hair cut to feel like they're participants in my art practice mm. and that and they're not they're coming to the salon and it works like any other they get a really good service and they get the haircut they want yeah they just get to look at something different um i'm not, i'm less interested now in taking it other places we have done exhibitions abroad in in other galleries uh-huh. but i think now we've got this big new space um i'm really sort of focused on making there yeah rather than taking it into someone else's gallery where the whole thing is seen as a thing i think yeah yeah great yeah. and jen what about you in terms of your own practice you in um, sam's practice well, i'm not so keen on book bookmaking but luckily uh-huh. my collaborator is very good at it, so um yeah sam and i have a very expanded practice yeah and so we do describe the gallery as an extension of that mm-hmm. But uh, as you've already introduced, we also make music and we have our visual art practice that's been ongoing and continues to be. So we tend to, um, we just sort of swing a little bit, like, you know, we'll program for a certain amount of time and then we'll get on with some of our own work. And so actually for the last six months or so, we've been using the studio, uh, using the gallery as our studio. And that's just been fantastic, again, to kind of reclaim the space for a bit. But, yeah. you know, we're working on a program for the autumn where that will then go back into, um, say, four, five, six months of gallery programming. But during that time, we've also got a solo show in Athens coming up at the end of the year and various music performance projects happening and another off-site project of our own. So we'll we'll just manage it. I, yeah. do, I do think it's helpful having two of us uh, to do that. Um, but we've also just found it's been really beneficial of, of like building a network. So having an artist-run space for us has been brilliant of like that community, you know, and helping other people. One of the things we realized quite early on was that we really enjoyed doing that yeah. and programming and, and working with other artists and helping their projects come into fruition. And we found we were good at it. So we were like, let's just Great. do it. Yeah. And um, can you say, you mentioned the record label, can you say a little bit more about how, how, how that came about and that, how that ties into yeah, to, to the so, space? Uh, <laughs> um, we started making music a few years ago when we started making film and it was very much a kind of experimental um, project. Mm. We, we were untrained musicians. We, yeah, we just sort of had a bit of a passion for it and we wanted to make our own soundtracks to films. Um, and then bit by bit we ended up forming... I don't really call it a band that often. It's more of like a music project, but it doesn't really matter if there's a label. It's sort of become a multidisciplinary project in its own right. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I guess we decided to make a record to record all of the music we have been making. And we funded it by doing a crowdfunder. Uh-huh. So we'd never done anything like that before. And it was suggested to me by a friend who works in independent publishing and she said it's very popular with people making their own books um and it really it was like a pre-selling so we sold i think maybe 70 records Mm. and we also made an artist edition of our own work for a bit more so the records are 20 pounds each 
we made an edition of 10 works for 100, 150 each. They sold out the records. And when we hit our target, it was done. Right. And so, so really it was a pre-sale uh -huh. rather than, you know, people were getting something for, they were giving something for something they would just take a year to make or yeah. something. And so, so that, that was so kind then, of contained, yeah, so, was sorry, it? Then yeah. we decided to... Um, we, we considered sort of working with a different label or uh, having somebody else put the record out and this sort of conversation went round and round and our DIY aesthetic just was like, well, why don't we just do it ourselves? And, <laughs> well, why don't we have French Riviera Records? Yeah. So it came about. Right. And it was like, you know, and we haven't, there's nothing else about to come out on the label, but maybe there will be yeah so, i mean maybe, maybe that, that will be our second album or step. maybe that will be somebody else's yeah. album and, yeah yeah and, and what about you roland because you're you're part of a, i know that there's there's three of you who kind of sort of set set up with the, all your own things going on as well how does it work for you in terms of what else you've got happening so we when we were teenagers we were all um in different bands but we knew each other so josh and i were in a band together and ollie was in a different one so we gigged together a lot and then um as those things kind of moved on and like developed, we, we ended up doing this. Um, we still collaborate on, on parts of things. Um, for me, I didn't go to art school and actually none of us kind of actually completed anything uh, at art school. Josh went for a bit. Um, so we, don't, we didn't really feel like we're, in some ways I don't really feel like an artist, but I do write mainly. Mm. Um, and doing set was really good for that in the sense that I had this desire to have a studio and, and organize things and run things. And I also had this kind of um, concurrent desire to, to write. And um, I wasn't really doing so much of the latter. But when we opened set, um, I met a lot of people who, who were doing things and were doing performance. And so then that encouraged me to then develop my practice and start publishing things, um, which has been really good. Um, and then it's also, you know, for instance, Harry invited us in, who's uh, Harry Bix, who's an associate member. He runs something called East Anglia Records. He invited Josh and I to do something as a part of that. And now I sometimes play in the East Anglia Records house band. Um, and Josh and I make audio books. Um, and we all still make music together, Ollie, Josh and I, which is nice. So yeah, in, in one sense, it was really good. It was kind of like a, a blossoming of something. And I actually started developing a practice and especially a writing thing that I was doing. And, and I mean, that's poetry and prose and a bit of plays. Um, but then at the same time, you kind of have moments in the middle of the night when you wake up and you're like, my God, what am I doing? Like, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't do any of the things I want to do. I need to like, break away, um, which is because running like something like set is basically like a, a 24-7 occupation. Yeah. And yeah, so you, you have these moments, these pangs of like a desire to do more of your own creative practice but then you just have to remember what it was like when I used to work in a job and I had no time to do anything so you know it's yeah. just life really, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we, I mean we've talked a lot about you know income streams and getting money in to make things happen but uh, uh, another side of it is that you know artists are hit, um, known for their resourcefulness so like getting stuff on the cheap um uh cutting costs or um working in sort of partnership with uh 
places and people to um, to to get stuff for less or for 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 no money, like sponsorship in kind and things. I just wondered whether um, any of you have had any uh, yeah tips on that or things projects that you've run uh, or ways that you run the space that uh, that uses that. Um, we've got a nice one at the moment where we um, we've got an open call. Yeah. If anybody wants to apply, there's a few spaces left. So we're swapping... When's uh, the deadline? 22nd of April. Okay, we'll plug that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're swapping artworks for haircuts. So we're doing one per day. And, uh -huh. uh, yeah, you bring us an artwork and we'll cut your hair. And, uh, yeah, so that's quite a resourceful one. Yeah. And that came from... Um, the long exhausting process of opening a really big shop mm. and not wanting to sort of mess artists around and not know when it was going to open yeah. so we sort of soft launched uh -huh. uh, with that so yeah i guess that was quite resourceful and and in the beginning uh, I, uh, I first did it in a what's that gallery called ancient and modern yeah white cross street um and i sort of built up again it was artists came and did a show and then I gave them a percentage of the money that I took in the haircuts for the day. Mm. So it very much came from having a skill and having friends who make art and yeah. just building something up, plugging it all together. But it sounds like what ties us all three together is the entrepreneurial yeah. spirit of artists and that's something you just see um, through and through, you know, yeah. and people just making stuff happen, yeah. And is that is that like a sort of label that you? I mean, uh, we hear it a lot at the university. You know, um, fostering entrepreneur, entrepreneurial activity in like arts graduates and stuff. And there's a lot of um, kind of resistance sometimes, particularly from younger graduates, towards that term and towards um, kind of uh, seeing their uh, career as an artist as a, a business. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think that's partly tied into the fact that, um, like the research showed, uh, that, that we've done shows, is that money and earning money isn't necessarily the primary motivator for, for, for practice. And I just wondered whether how that's, whether that, that's true for you guys and whether that's changed in relation to your space. So run, whether running an artist like uh, Lead Space makes you think differently about, about you know, earning and why you're making work and the importance of earning money from it. Ten years of not earning makes yeah. you think differently about not yeah. earning. <laughs> it's fine to think that when you're at art school, yeah. isn't it? But it gets to the point where you think, I need to be a successful human being as well as being a successful artist. Yes. You know, that life, art life balance, like, uh, yeah, that needs mm. thinking about I, I think, um, I think that comes down to individuals as well, like mm. uh, people... Um, need to stop inviting artists to do things for nothing like you you know you should have a fee to do an exhibition you should have a budget to make a, a work mm. like you should be paid for your work like you wouldn't you wouldn't ask the plumber to fix your toilet just because you love it it's what it's what you do it doesn't make any sense yeah but where does the um, money come from well that's the that's the question right i mean it it, it sounds like having sort of heard what what you know the conversation tonight it sounds like there is like a, a big reliance that hasn't gone away on uh, you know arts council funding and other sort of traditional sort of arts sources of funding and the the money from there a little bit of money comes in from outside to occasionally sort of plug gaps but largely we're still like smaller spaces are still or lots but not just smaller spaces larger spaces as well are like reliant on on 
those traditional arts. I've been thinking about this a lot, and, yeah. um, especially as we moved into a bigger space with rates and all, like it's a grown up business now mm. and how, how do I price the haircuts and all this sort of stuff. So I've been reading um, on my commute, I've, I've had my business education through podcasts and audio books uh-huh. and stuff. And I've just come around to the conclusion that I think people should start paying for it to, to see art. That's the only thing, I, only reason I can come up with or, the, or a membership sort of model uh-huh. where people are paying a sort of studio and the money gets divvied up between artists because while ever there's an expectation that exhibitions should be free to visit, the, art, the state is drawing back their funding mm. so the artists are being the one that are subsidising the exhibitions, whether it be with their time or resources or whatever. And yeah, that's... Yeah. We're, yeah, we're it's, re- it's a really tough place. The bill. Yeah, it is. And it is. It's like it's the arts admin staff and the artists who are sort of yeah subsidising it. Yeah. yeah, I think um, we've done a few kind of more experimental shows where we've um, looked at kind of income streams. So the the easy one, I guess, would be like to do one towards the end of the year when it's building up to Christmas. We've done shows with artists and makers, and then had everything for sale uh-huh. at quite a cheap. Uh, amount um, and that's been really successful and it also led us on to doing additions artworks with each artist we've been working with um, and having them for affordable prices so looking at and whilst we don't we have never really followed a, a path of working as a commercial space we definitely would sell art like I have no we have no problem with doing that and so with each show we would definitely look towards trying to sell yeah. the art um, and if you make an addition with each artist, then you can look at building like a younger collector audience where maybe it's only a hundred pounds and people can afford that. And yeah, and that helps also raise the profile of the artist, which in turn is you know great for them and, and kind of take it out into the world and yeah, in a different way. So. I think for us, most of our our core funding is is all just from membership fees in the bar. Mm. But um, um, we the the nights we put on in Dalston, people get paid through either door money, so it is people paying to to see stuff, or it's donation based, or we just take it as a percentage off the bar. Pays people. It does work um, um, as a as a means of doing something. Um, uh, the question of I mean, what's the the original question was whether or not we had um, whether or not we'd managed to get away from funding, was it? Yeah, or? well, well, yeah, but it just sounded like we're still uh, as a sector, particularly sort of artist-led spaces, in terms of delivering program, it's still fairly rely reliant on funding. There's no getting away from that. Yeah, I mean, so, so, I mean, someone has to foot the bill, and and I guess we kind of mix a mass membership. I mean, mass membership is not mass membership. We miss. We have maybe about three hundred members yeah. who have workspace, and they're people paying for their studios. And I guess if there's an excess, some of the excess goes into to us doing our our projects. But really, yeah, if we want to do something ambitious, then then we need need funding to do that. Um, in some ways, clearly true. You can be resourceful, like. Um, we use stuff that we find in buildings and and, and, yeah. <laughs> and make, make make stuff out of that. Um, and so, 
it's not, it's not that you, you can make stuff for free, but we're also not allowed to sell work. Um, so as a, as a charity, part of our stipulations, I don't know if it's true for all charities that we don't sell work. So that, that's actually... Because that would give uh, private yeah. benefit to an individual artist and we're not... So individual artists aren't allowed to accrue private benefit from the work that we do in theory. Uh -huh. We are meant to advance the arts as a public benefit. Um, so in some sense, we can't sell work. And, and in that way... I mean, the state should give up more money if, unless, unless we want people to pay to pay to visit shows. And again, we're there's some limit to the amount we're we're meant to do free things. So you're kind of it's a bit of a catch between two. The one thing we get off is obviously we get a reduction on business rates, so the entire running of a building is cheaper for us. Uh -huh. um, but. Yeah, when I first said I was going to do set to my dad, he said, um, it's, a, it's a life of self-exploitation in the arts. <laughs> and I'm not sure you want to do that. <laughs> um, which I still Thanks, think I dad. am. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you mentioned the, the sort of uh, uh, business rates. And, like, you know, it, as, a, as a, uh, not just artist-led spaces, but, all, uh, you know, we rely a lot as a sector of... of for um, generosity and collaboration from other sort of spaces outside of the sort of art sector. So um, I just wondered um, in terms of establishing your space or projects that you've had in your spaces, whether you've had any kind of, I don't know, collaborations with local business or any particularly sort of strong like allies or partners that, that have been really helpful in, in getting things going or, or running projects. We have a good social media retweeting scheme with SLG. Uh -huh. and Works, they'll retweet job applications. Yeah. Um, and we hired out the Brunel Museum. So, um, uh, so it's something I definitely want to push, but we've not done a lot of. Didn't you do a thing with um, like a local um, business with bags where you sort of produced merchandise? Or am I, am I misremembering that? Yeah, we that? just commissioned the bags from a local uh -huh. screen printer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but um, yeah, as I said, like seventy percent of the people that come in to get their hair cut on Art World mm. professionals. Um, so we've got a fairly big sort of uh, following now of people that don't normally go to galleries. So yeah. I that's quite a nice uh, resource that we're building up. Um, so that's why we did the project with Faye Nicholson, which was this sort of choral performance piece in the Brunel Museum and that was really nice because we invited a lot of the people that come to get their hair cut to then come and uh, see the uh, this other museum that they wouldn't have been to before mm. um, and now we've got uh, this space with a lot more footfall and visibility that's definitely something we want to include so you we're expanding the showing a lot of art to new audiences but then also maybe we can link in with other galleries and maybe co-commission and then you spend an hour with us and then you might want to head on to another gallery around the corner and see what's see their space yeah. as well so it's definitely something i'm excited about but um yeah we've not done very much well uh, actually that's something that i did i did want to sort of up, talk a little bit more about is that quite frequently for artist-led spaces are really important because they kind of support artists sometimes earlier in their careers and act as a pipeline to, to more established spaces or bigger galleries and institutions do you feel like those kind of institutions have a bit more of a responsibility to artist-led spaces as a result of this? And would you like to see more kind of collaboration with these kind of spaces? I mean, that's a good example that you talked about. But how, yeah, how would you like that? If so, how would you like that collaboration to look? And yeah, how do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I think that would be very beneficial, actually, and it's uh, definitely something Sam and I have discussed. Uh -huh. um, we've worked with lots of artists that have gone on to do bigger and, you know, more successful, or not more successful, but, you know, their careers have been propelled from working with us, and, like, Lisa Bryce just did a show at Tate Britain, and, you know, there's various artists we've worked with. I would definitely like to see uh, blue-chip commercial galleries give back. Yeah. And, and, I think it could be it, it, um, via cash, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> basically, <Yeah. laughs> uh, and mentoring. Yeah. You know, I think support and just sort of being there and um, helping you sort of spread, you know, continue what you're doing. And I'm sure there's various partnerships they could become involved in. It, I think it would be really helpful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in some sense, we're slightly more new to this and we don't expect much from them. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's not just um, arts organisations. Like, there's, like, there's interest for loads of different businesses to partner. Yeah. And, and we're trying to develop those kind of partnerships with like-minded other businesses. For instance, to keep our electricity low, partnering with an electricity company. And we're discussing that at the moment. Um, and I think, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't really. It would be nice to get some money. Um, some money is always nice, um, but other than that, we're not, we're not expecting much from anyone else. If we have, we partner also a in some sense. You know, working Vox with Brooks has been good, um, and and we're developing relationships um, with different places around here. Like we've got a good relationship with CGP that's around the corner, um, and that's been really nice. Um, and these things will go organically, I guess. Um, but yeah, from the larger institutions, we don't expect much. But we do find working with universities good. Uh -huh. um, also because they bring both expertise um, and, and funding, which is good. Um, and that, I mean, this collaboration with sort of other galleries, and one of the things we talk to individual artists about a lot is how important it is to have like a a sort of support network in terms of getting feedback and developing your practice and your kind of careers. I just wondered whether there's a similar sort of support network amongst artist-led spaces, whether, you know, you, you meet and chat with other artist-led spaces about how to, how to do it, what goes wrong, what's working, what isn't. We've definitely supported each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's sort of very sort of on the ground. Yeah. You work together. So, yeah. you know, Daniel's done projects at French Riviera and... Okay. Has has done haircuts <laughs> at French Riviera. We worked, put on a play with him yeah. many years ago. Been cutting my hair. <laughs> uh, Josh, who runs set, did a, a music project in our yard. I think you kind of just swap that yeah. resource quite a lot. Great. Um, I th sorry, guys. I should say L'Oreal gave me twenty grand to work <laughs> the shop as well. I forgot. <laughs> so yeah, we have partnered That's with other good. businesses. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you how did you sort of negotiate because uh, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask is like when you're dealing with like you know a lot of the time you're dealing with landlords or kind of other companies that maybe um, might not be as uh, might not value contemporary art in the same way like how is there anything that you can say about how you kind of neg negotiate uh, well that was like a bit of a mind blower yeah we, we buy their hair dye uh -huh. them, um, and we're tiny tiny sort of account but um, the guy said that we have a regional rep and his manager really took a shine 
to the project because we got in an award and came to visit and um, sort of mentioned that if I was to get a new premises, they could make an investment in it. Mm. And it's a sort of... I think normally it's a loan that they'll give to a hairdressing salon to help them... Um, Re renovate and they'll sort of expect some sort of L'Oreal light boxes to be included in their renovation uh -huh. to sort of give a uniform-ish look to some of their salons but the James was so loved what we did just and, and often the, this is paid back they might do with two businesses where they just you sign a contract and say that you'll buy their products for five years and you don't have to pay it back so he absolutely loved the project and loved what we were doing uh -huh. within the hairdressing industry and yeah made this huge investment and we didn't we don't have to pay it back and we didn't have to put any of that he sort of kept their design as well away and let us just spend it on how we made the place look amazing so that's a, a, an amazing sort of investment and so we're now a project space with air conditioning <laughs> <laughs> which I think is quite cool. That is pretty well, yeah, and, in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to open it up to the uh, audience now. Uh, yeah, do we have any sort of uh, questions or comments? I will swap microphones. So I'll give you mine. Okay. And then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do the roving. Yeah, anyone? Ah, great. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. That was uh, really wonderful and interesting. Um, just wondered whether you had any tips, actually, for finding spaces in the first place. I know, I think Daniel mentioned how you got your first small cupboard, mm. um, but I wasn't 100% clear on how you guys first went from not having a space to, to actually having someone. Well, we, start, we started off um, when we were young, basically squatting buildings, which in, involved wandering around, finding empty buildings, and then, you know, going in there. Um, when we started Dig, we came very quickly to an arrangement with the landlord in which um, we'd kind of gone into this building and he agreed to put us onto a contract. After that ended, we used the same method, but not just entering buildings. We wandered around, looked for empty buildings, then went on the land registry, bought the land registry for three quid and then contacted the owner and said, do you want us to or can we use your space? That is both time consuming and incredibly demoralizing because about 90% of the people you speak to don't get back to you. But then once you have one place and you have a test for having worked, people come to you. So we just get, and also speak to councils who are helpful and often have space registers. Southwark has a space register um, where they just offer up um, opportunities to bid on, on buildings. Usually you have to be a company or, or an incorporated organisation in some way, but you can kind of do that fairly quickly. So yeah, um, and nowadays obviously there are moments when we don't take on buildings but it's just about spending a lot of time contacting people and telling them about what you want to do and eventually they, they will give like someone, someone will take a chance on you. <laughs> So there's no easy answer. I know that's uh, our art angel find a lot of their spaces. It's on a bicycle, just going, going around, around. And, and looking. And and actually, my new premises I found through a land registry search. Yeah. So it's that real proactive sort of nature, and that was just a complete fluke. The first one I sent through to the owners landed at the right time. Really, that's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, a sort of supplementary question. So, who would you contact in the council? So you find a space on the, uh, on the land register, what particular... Well, 
so that's only if the council own a property. Yeah. So I'd contact within the council, there'll be the, I'll look up who the arts officer is. Uh -huh. The arts officers for Southwark are really nice. Um, and just say, do you have a space register where you put out um, opportunities to, to bid um, on, on buildings and can we be added to it? And they do often. Um, in fact, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure Lewisham Southwark and Hackney all have space registers. I'm not sure about Hackney now, but yeah. Great. Anyone, anyone else? Thank you all. That was absolutely fascinating. And um, you've given me a huge amount to think about. One of the things I'm really contemplating is I'm, I work with a group called Incidental Unit, which is the new artist placement group. So this is an avant-garde uh, movement from the 1960s that was very interested in placing artists in context beyond the art world. And what was really integral to that kind of value system was that the, the context in which they were placed, they paid for the artists. And, um, and there was a, a series of developments. It starts with a feasibility study, and then there's a placement, and then ideally there's an exhibition. And, and I think that what you've been talking about today is, is really relevant in that regard, although I can see that these are not placements in the traditional sense. My question is, is sort of thinking about APG, and, and one of the distinguishing features of that practice is that it was incredibly volatile. So there were all kinds of spectacular fights and fallouts, and those are very well documented, in fact, celebrated. And, and I'm, I'm really struck. You all seem so nice. <laughs> no, actually, this is a very serious question, because I think we want to understand how it is that we can, especially in reputation economies that involve a huge amount of emotional labor, how, how it is that we can actually refuse, we can part ways, we can, we can actually fight back. Um, I also, I guess I'm thinking about, obviously we're all implicit, we're all kind of um, part and parcel of gentrification as, as artists as well, so how, how are you sort of negotiating these complexities? <laughs> um, I would say that life is complicated enough to not bring in more chaos to it, so um, I've kind of learned to try and make my practice as harmonious as possible because I actually think I'm more productive under that circumstance. Um, really, yeah. <laughs> I think the contractors I've been using wouldn't say I was that nice, which <laughs> I was, by the end of the shop fit, I was actually quite <laughs> glad that uh, they were a bit scared of me. Yeah, so. We, we in some sense do, we both, we get along really well, we've known each other for long times, so but we do have like moments of arguments and stuff like that. Um, and that can like, you know, have some discord, especially if we want to do different things or think what we should do to take a different direction. But that's also fine, you kind of, we get through that as a, as a group. Um, Amy Neat, who's our... Um, uh, who recently joined our management, she's quite good at kind of, um, you know, at being a, a fourth person who's, who we don't know as well, and that kind of balances things out nicely. Um, in terms of gentrification, that is something that obviously, with what we do and taking on temporary buildings and going from place to place, that's something that we think about a lot. Um, and we are, in, in some sense, concerned about the role we have to play in that, in allowing both developers to have a building essentially and wait on it in order to develop it 
and they can wait on it because we're using it. They don't have to foot the bill for business rates. We, so we think about that a lot. We try not to work with developers who we think are doing like genuinely really bad things, but it, it happens. It's an inevitability. I don't think artists themselves, everyone works with what you want to do and, and you work within your own best interest. The idea that you should somehow blame artists for moving to cheap areas in London is like for me ridiculous, but um, as an organisation, we hold some responsibility for where we decide to set up our, our places. And we, we do try and look at each thing and think, you know, is this, is this morally okay and should we do it? And we hopefully hit the right answer. You know, is the, does the benefit outweigh the long-term um, problem with, with whatever development might be? Hi, um, I have a question about audience. So, um, I mean, I guess looking at audience you have right now, how did it build up in the beginning? Was it more organic process? Your friends come over to your event and word of mouth kind of spread in that way? Or it's also a combination of more planned, proactive reaching out? Um, was it, if it's that's the case, what kind of um, advice you have in terms of developed audience and understand them? Uh, I guess mine's a bit different really, isn't it? Um, it started off with very low overheads and um, just friends really coming to get their haircut. As I said, it was 50 quid a week, so I'd only have to do sort of two haircuts and then that would cover the, the, the rent. Um, but people in the beginning would just come in, they didn't even know that I was a hairdresser. There was people, oh, you actually know how to do this. All oh, right, I was just thought you were having a go. So it took a long time in its own, well, I guess about two or three years to really like get the idea that the, the, this works like a hair salon, but you look at art instead of a mirror and you actually get a good service. Um, so for me, it was just really lucky to have really low overheads and to be able to ride that out with the support of the of the art world I suppose who were coming uh, we got the Arts Council funding quite early so we were commissioning uh, really good shows with pretty big artists who would bring a few people and do a few haircuts and but yeah sort of word just spread locally for me um, I have a long running offer that still goes today of you can pay what you can for the first haircut um, now it's quite expensive to get your, it, the top price you can pay now is 70 pounds to get your hair cut with me and the, it's 50 pounds with the iddy who I've trained but yeah we do this pay what you can for the first haircut um, so that everyone can still come in and experience uh, the, the, um, the place no matter what you used to pay in. And so I think that has built up. It's been this sort of one-man mission to, well, started off a one-man mission to sort of get people into good quality haircuts, and it seems to have worked. Um, at the beginning, I did my own branding and posters, and they all, I thought, looked quite good, but it didn't bring anybody in. So when I started working with a graphic designer, she took the logo and actually made it good. And now people see the posters and they come come in so I think that is the the one thing that has been really good is local posters for us and Instagram I don't know some people said they've seen it and come in but it's really hard to track and it takes a lot of work to do the Instagram 
Yeah. But yeah. I think you do need it. So. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. We, uh, we started with a group show. It was very simple. You do a group show. Each person brings an audience. And, and it was friends and family members, you know, and everybody kind of came together. Um, I did find it kind of quickly before I knew it, there were shows where I didn't recognize lots of people. And that was actually really fun and like exciting for us, I guess, to build that new audience. Um, it is so, or that, that it was like a solely an art audience, but we've also definitely looked to kind of expand to our local community. And we've had everyone from like local shopkeepers and the butcher and we get uh, an old East End audience. We're in Bethnal Green, so we get an old sort of East End audience come in. We also get um, a Bangladeshi community audience come in. And we definitely, you know, we, we would encourage that as much as possible. Um, and I guess just sort of trying to have a diverse program where we, the, we don't show a specific type of art. We'll do as many different things as as feel interesting to us and try to really open that uh, that perspective up as much as possible. You do a good newsletter as well, don't you? I think that's quite important these days. Do we? Oh, yeah. that's good. Um, yeah, yeah you know, and help. we sort of do all of those things ourselves. We also design a poster for every show. Um, mm. And actually, resourcefulness, we've, we've sort of worked out a very cheap way of doing that, and it looks very sophisticated, I would say. Um, uh, it, it sort of looks like a, a screen-printed uh, poster, but that's just because we invested in good quality paper, but we use photocopier, and it just works really well. And we mail that out, and people really like that. And that will reach people who can't come to the shows, but they'll be like, oh, but we've got the poster up in our gallery, office, studio, like whatever that is. And that, that really works as well, i found, so... Um, we definitely started off kind of word of mouth, like like um, you guys, and we, I guess because we ran the bar, we ran this pub for a bit called the Greenwich Pensioner, in um, in Poplar, and that started this idea of having something like a an somewhere where just anyone would come in. It's your local boozer, and then you might have some performance or something at the same time, and that was interesting. It led to like quite bizarre meetings of people. Um, and, and, and moments of, of like, because it was, it was really just like local people come in from about four to have a drink. And then suddenly like all of these people from the studios where Ollie had his studio originally, Ollie Durkin, um, and, and they'd then come into the bar for like the performance and there'd be people who, you know, like it was kind of like a meeting of worlds. This is really like, also it was in an area where it was really high poverty rates essentially and 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 that worked quite well for a long time um and and so that's kind of what we tried to do with set in in dalston too that it's open for everyone it's free to come in anyone can have a drink but you can also enjoy the music or see the performance um and it does work uh, up, up up to a degree i guess at all scott road with our with our like other art program it's more art crowd people we're trying to reach out and make connections with um local organizations which are doing at the moment for our projects and we do advertise in all of like southern libraries and stuff like that because that's a good place to get people in and um, we have a reading room at all scott road too which was open up until recently which did draw in you know some people who just wanted to sit somewhere you know, um, when it was when we had heating and it was warm in the summer, <laughs> but no one wants to sit in Old Scott Road in the winter. It's freezing cold. 
Yes, we will come back to you. Thanks. So someone else had touched on this, which is um, social media. And I love to hate social media. So I'm sort of wondering what your strategies might be and how much time you invest in social media and how much of a return you feel like that works for you. Um, and then separately, you've each talked about um, your local communities and your local neighborhoods. And as galleries and arts organizations, do you plan, I mean, like, do you actually have in your planning or in your schedule for a year, do you have, like, exhibitions that bring in local artists or interns or residencies for local uh, people in order to bring locals directly into interacting with or working with the gallery? Uh, I've got a young person that does the social media, so that works quite well for us. Um, she's done a fantastic job with it. Um, when she started, <laughs> um, I'd, well, I only joined social media when I opened the gallery. So, uh, the, yeah, I'd never, I was never on it before. Um, and she said, oh, yeah, store, in, in Instagram stories are kind of my thing. And that was like music to my ears because I didn't even know what they were at the time. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of input. We collaborate with the artists. We don't call it like a takeover, but we ask them to think about how their work can be represented throughout the course of the exhibition on Instagram. So we've had like people... Uh, a really good example was Rory O'Connell's show. He had these phone boxes where we took um, visitors' footprints. And so for the social media, we took photos of people holding their footprints. So rather than just putting documentation of the shows on the social media, it's like thinking about how the exhibition can be represented that way. Um, so yeah, Idi works alongside the artists to develop that, and that seems to go quite well. Um, but it is really time consuming. I mean, she has a bit of time now when she's not cutting people's hair to do that. So it kind of works okay. But we don't have much of a plan in place for it at the moment because it's just fallen by, it's, it's kind of low down the priority list and it's really hard to track the, how many people it draws in. Um, people do definitely seem to use it as a lookbook for, for a hairdressing salon, they will look us up on there. So it's definitely something you need to do. Um, and then what was the other bit of your question? Not specifically, but we're in South East London and that seems to be where most of the artists are now. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, uh, social media is not a huge thing for us. I, I like to post pictures of palm trees from all over the world, <laughs> being that it's French Riviera. Um, and the local thing, uh, yeah, no, I, everything we do is kind of curated as part of our, of our kind of ongoing practice with French Riviera, and it's really, uh, it's not specific, but I guess it's not, not specific <laughs> to the local audience. So I like the idea that um, people will come and see some art in this old shop and and it's there and available for them and they can wander in off the street. I guess one of the things that's great about French Riviera is it's on street level and we've got a lovely big open window. So you can also see it from outside. Um, we did a show a few years ago where we, um, it was called Le Television. In the beginning, we used to do all of our titles in French. 
Um, and we also had a, a run of various French um, assistants who just seemed to start contacting us. So they helped us. So that was quite fun. One girl who couldn't speak any English, so but had got a job with a gallery in France, a very good gallery. But they said you have to go to England and learn French and oh, sorry, and learn English and come back. But no other galleries would take her. So we were like, well, we don't. That's fine. We don't. You know, it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we did a show. Uh, La Television was was made of. I think 19 old television sets in the gallery window and the space was shut and it was visible from the street outside for all of the opening hours and it was through the winter. So that was very much like a public artwork for the street and for the community and that worked really nicely and there was 19 artists in the show and it pro we programmed it so each person's video showed on every screen and it moved around. So I think that one, you know, yeah, that was sort of specifically for people in the neighborhood who maybe wouldn't necessarily come in, but would, we, we became very aware that a lot of people were stopping and seeing shows from outside, even though it was very welcome space for them to come into, not everybody wants to, and that's fine. And they really, you know, that had huge audience numbers. People were stopping and watching all day and into the evening, so. Um, for us, um, over though it's quite difficult to track, over 80% of our membership um, in Dalston either lives or works in Hackney, and over 50% of our membership in um, Southwark live or work in Southwark. Um, we, as I like to write in in documents, because it's because they co-curate the programme, it means we have um, Southwark or Hackney residents, depending on where I'm writing the document for, involved in the conception, development and delivery of our programme. So um, we have that. And in terms of social media, yeah, we rely really heavily on it because we do events um, and we invite people to Facebook events and then our Instagram we use a lot. We had some help doing that um, from Helena who um, stopped working with us at the end of last month, and now it's gone a bit more anarchic, and we're, we're just doing it ourselves. Um, but we do, we do post quite a lot, because that's, you know, we need people to go to the bar, otherwise, you know, the entire thing doesn't work. How many followers, <laughs> how many followers have you got? Well, uh, probably less than you. Um, <laughs> I don't know, 2,700, something like that? <laughs> Um, yeah, I just wanted to. Um, I get my questions is well for Jan, Daniel, but also for for Set. Um, just in terms of how you see the your businesses kind of gro um, growing into the future, and it's certainly something that we're sort of considering with French Riviera in terms of what's the next stage for it. Um, having done it for for a number of years, it's kind of you know do you do you carry on? Do you, do you keep growing? And I'm quite interested in how. Daniel Mosseni's um, expanded, um, and what that kind of involved as in terms of whether it was necessary to bring in outside investment in terms of being able to do that, um, but also that there's a kind of mirror of in terms of what you're doing um, with the in, in terms of the income streams. So you're, you were saying that your most of your income comes from the business side of it, so from selling haircuts, and a, a kind of minority comes from the funding from from the Arts Council, whereas with French Riviera, I think it's kind of sort of the opposite. We have kind of a majority coming from the Arts Council funding and a minority coming from, from sales of artworks. Um, so I'm just wondering if you see it, you, the business growing in terms of, 
developing the the art gallery side of it and whether kind of selling artwork will will kind of is is part of your vision for the growth of the future of the business um it's a really good question um so i've sort of had to take my role as a business owner more seriously um and that started about two years ago um so i've got a five-year plan now with goals broken down last year's goal was to get a new space so uh, i know that was this year's goal so i've done that already um by five years the plan was to franchise and sort of have different spaces around the country and tour the exhibitions round. But since opening this new shop, I've thought, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to open another one. <laughs> Maybe the 50 Maybe quid spaces. Zones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm not sure about that now. Um, it's really interesting to think about, it, we got our first big loan um, uh, grant from the Arts Council, but they've told us that we probably won't get another one now. So we got to that point. Um, and it's, it's just how do you prioritise? There's five people employed now with holidays and all that sort of stuff. So it's a fairly lot of responsibility. There's kind of a lot invested in it. Um, we did, we've just finished about six months without Arts Council funding. Um, so it was just me running the business. And luckily I've still got one or two artists I could phone up and arrange an exhibition in 90 seconds, you know, because that was about how much time I had to plan the show because my priorities are on making this business financially sustainable now. Um, and and a year or two ago, I would say it was 50% gallery and 50% hair salon. Perhaps in the beginning, it was more 80% gallery and 20% salon. If I talk to my brother, who's a financial uh, business person, doesn't not artistic bone in his body he'll say it's 80 percent hairdressing salon and 20 percent gallery because that's how much money that's where the that's what the financial statements say but um i don't quite buy that because i think it's not as simple as um where the money's coming from and how the priorities of the business so my goal is to set it up as a b corp um and that's sort of in between a charity and a business so you can um, I think my goal is to do that by next year so you can have it legally uh, written into the business that uh, you you can it's equal balance between your shareholders and your stakeholders so you're you're equally prioritizing making money with a, a sort of social impact um, so that sort of I thought I was to go in I was looking at CIC's and social enterprise but they're not quite right because they're a bit more like you i think more on the charitable side and I, it's a business and i've put three years into it and i want to make money now <laughs> like i need a fucking holiday <laughs> and so this felt that the um the b corp felt like a nice way of do you doing a business but doing good um with that business um uh, how it clicked into place was uh, training up artists to be hairdressers. That's something that I can really see the business model sort of growing now and becoming its own th thing. And I could I could almost get that going and step away from it if I wanted to. And that is my ambition to to get the business in a place where it doesn't need me there, just so I feel that it's not completely taking over my life. And then just see see where I land in a few years. 
Could, um, could I could I just ask, um, with those artists, are they continuing their career as artists as well? Is that something that, or, or are they? It's really intense. How I've said it to them is it, it, they're learning the profession in a year. So it's a year's training and then probably another year or two to sort of settle into it. They have done exhibitions, but they've got no time, really. But like you said, who... But do you feel okay about who's that? Who's got time? <laughs> um, <laughs> Stealing well, artists for hairdressing. Because <laughs> in three years, then they'll have time and a profession and they can work wherever. And then, you know... They can open your franchise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what, sort of, what graduate does have any time? So at least they're learning something. Yeah, yeah. So I feel fine with that, yeah. <laughs> they can do my Instagram. <laughs> Um, I think we've got time for maybe one more question, um, or if not, then uh, I'd invite you to all uh, join us for a drink. Um, any any final questions before we before we wrap up? Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't stop myself when I think about something. Um, I mean, today we've been talking about artists like space, and we understand space in a sense quite literal, having a physical space. But I think um, a space can also be um, a virtual space, online space, um, as long as creating a kind of space for, for conversations on art. Um, I'm kind of just pondering around the, 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 the advantage and disadvantage of having physical space versus having, doesn't have a physical space. You can still run programs online or um, only kind of rent or partner with um, spaces when you need to, to do programming. Um, so I just kind of wondering whether you have thought on this or you have thought about kind of giving up uh, the physical space to go more mobile, more kind of fluid. Yeah, I haven't really, but I, I guess it just comes down to personal choice. If that's the project you want to work on, or if you want to work on something physical, and uh, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. You can do either, and there are project spaces that run as um, an online uh, residency program or, or otherwise. So. I think the art world's been very slow to catch up with the digital revolution music fashion have all really had to change their models massively because of what's happening in that regard but i think i was interested in the facts you said about how many people earn a living and um i was doing another talk at the london art fair a few months ago and somebody said there is about 30 people buying art 30 30 <laughs> off about 300 artists um, and this was someone who's researching this for a PhD. And so the rest of us are sort of underneath, just sort of bubbling around. And I suppose it doesn't suit those 300 or those 30 people for art to move into a digital realm. Um, but the rest of us, it would probably suit quite well. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that, I think the potentiality for it, for it to be more d democratic in some way and reach a wider audience is, is huge. But then at the same time, I'm a bit, I like live things and seeing things live and the experience of that. So, um, and as you were saying, I think it just depends on the project you want to do. But yeah, it could, in theory, you could just reach so many more people and well, everyone can experience something. Well, Roma on Netflix, I think, is quite an exciting yeah. turn because that means the, that 
the art can speak for itself and it can get into homes all across the world. Um, yeah, which it wouldn't have reached like for going through an independent sort of movie publisher. So I do mm. feel very excited about that. But I think the art framing of things in that regard, just nobody's found the right platform for that yet. Um, where you can come to it with that patience that you would go to a gallery mm. and that's the sort of the that's stumbling block so in, many tabs that you can open the stumbling <laughs> the stumbling block in my mind yeah but um i'm gonna let somebody else solve that <laughs> i think um we've run out of time but Great. i just wanted to say a massive thank you to um dk uk french riviera and set for joining us this evening and a big thank you to shipment you. as well for hosting us and also uh, to you the audience for for taking part so thanks again um thank you everyone yeah, thank, thank you, you. And, uh, thank you everyone for yeah please um join us for a, um, a glass of wine just uh, around the corner there and uh, yeah we can pick up on any other